0: and welcome to Ready for Love Radio. This is your host and love coach, Nikki Lee. You might have noticed the intro today was different. That's because I'm taking you back this week and next week to a show I did about 12 years ago, I believe. The book is set in the jungle and the interview is with a former helicopter pilot. The book is titled Vietnam Air Rescue. It took place between 1967 and 1968. Really, really good book. It's going to be a two-part show. This week, we're going to talk to the author about his experiences, why he wrote the book, how it came to be, interesting experiences he had. And then next week, I've got an interview with him And one of the people that he rescued, and actually what at the time was the largest rescue uh, in Vietnam during the war. So it's, um, that actually, these are actually two of my favorite shows that I did when I had a radio show promoting and interviewing authors. Um, And I did that for several years. So, they're, they're no longer archived on Blog Talk Radio, so they're not stored anywhere anymore, and I want to get them back online so people can be able to hear them. So I want to share them with you all and get them back so people can experience them again. So we'll start with the first one tonight, which is with Dave Richardson. Like I said, he's the author of the book. He's the former pilot. And then next week we'll have him and Kenny, who is the person who he rescued, and Kenny also wrote a book. So we'll we'll share details about both of those with you. Let's listen to the interview.
1: You may have noticed I started with a little bit of different intro this week. Normally I have music, but this week we are talking to Dave Richardson, who's the author of Vietnam Air Rescues. So having a little jungle sounds and the helicopter blades seem much more appropriate. So, Dave, would you like to say hello?
2: Hi, everybody. Those brought back some memories from old days of old.
1: <laughs> we are going to talk about Dave, um, why he decided to write his book, what he's done to promote it, and we're going to talk about the experiences that went into creating the book. His book is actually, I guess memoir would be the right the right term, to tell us about his experiences as, as a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, I believe in '69, wasn't it, Dave?
2: 67,
1: 68, yeah. Okay. And he's got a neat promo thing that he does um, promoting the book. And he says, Eavesdrop, as a father recounts to his adult children his exploits as an Air Force jolly green combat helicopter rescue pilot in Vietnam. Be there to see what it was really like. Ride along and determine what you would have done when another man's life was literally, literally hanging in the balance. Feel what it meant to save a life and experience heart-pounding action in Vietnam Air Rescues. I like that. That kind of sums up a lot of, a lot of information, all in a few lines. The name of the book now is Vietnam Air Rescues, but that wasn't what it was in the beginning, was it?
2: No, when I first started out, uh, my sons had been bugging me to write it, and I was real resistant to it. And when I finally broke down and did it, I called it an old helicopter pilot remembers Vietnam. Now, see,
1: I like that. I think that's very neat.
2: Well, I thought it was good too, but my children hated it. <coughs> so they prevailed on me to change it. <laughs> really
1: so they insisted it had to be different. Huh? I, th- I think he said that he thought it was stodgy.
2: Stodgy was his word. Yeah, that was my oldest son. He said, Dad, uh, he said, if you're going to do anything, else, the originally I just wrote it for my children, and then we had a lot of people asking for it. And he said, if you're going to give it to the general public, change that title. It's too stodgy. <laughs> <So.
1: laughs> Tell us what inspired you to write the books. I know that. So the boys kind of shoved you into it, kicking and screaming. I think at some points. So so, how did the book actually come into being?
2: Well, it's kind of a, a long, convoluted story. I'll try to boil it down. And when I got back from Vietnam, we I was uh, transferred to Germany. And uh, while we were over there, the Germans have what they call a Volksmarch, where you can walk, it's basically a walk through the countryside, and you sign up and you get a little medal at the end. And so the two. Old, Oh, I now have four boys. At the time, I only had two. And the two older boys would go on the march with me and have something to do. I would just tell them some of the stories from Vietnam, and, and um, they were kind of attentive. And years and years later, uh, my number two son, Craig, remembered those stories, and he says, Dad, I want you to write those things down. And I just wasn't interested. And it sounded like too much work, too much trouble, and I guess I was too lazy. And all of a sudden, uh, one day, I, I got a call out of the blue. Uh, from somebody wanted to know if I was Jolly 09, and it turned out uh, it was 30 years after the rescue was over with, and the Air Force had asked uh, those people that were left to uh, come and brief the Air Force on. It was kind of a a large mission at the time, and so I got to go, and I got to meet the survivor, and a bunch of people were in it again, and and after that, I was uh, coordinating with him via email, and one day, he sent me uh, just a couple of pages, his reminiscences of what had happened from his point of view, and and I thought, hmm, that would be interesting to kind of counterpoint what happened from my point of view. And I found out it was interesting. So from there, I went on to write the thing down for my children.
1: That's neat. And I believe that person's name is Kenny, and his book is Streetcar Three Hundred Four. Is that right?
2: Yeah, the Rescue of Streetcar Three Zero Four. Yeah. Right tremendous guy and it's a good book it's a a fascinating i keep
1: keep hearing that and i've got the summary now i've got to read the book (laughs) yeah you
2: need to get the book he takes the uh he takes thing from beginning to end and he weaves in uh, what everybody was doing Uh, he's interviewed different people uh, from all sides of it and just a totally totally fascinating book very very good book
1: well, just for, for the people listening and for the people that download in the next week, um, Dave is going to be back with us, and Kenny will also be with us. So we're going to get to talk to the two of them and hear the story from the pilot's point of view and from the survivor's point of view and see see what went on with both of them. I'm still working out the logistics of all that, but it's going to be awesome to hear both of y'all. Because I've, I've read your, your side of what went on, and it's going to be interesting to see what he was thinking and going through while y'all were in the air trying to get to him.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, he had... Quite an adventure on the ground while we were over a three-day period. We we're trying to get to him. He went through quite a bit.
1: Well, I say just just from hearing what you all were going through, I could just imagine some of the things. But yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to hear hear the whole story of what was going on on the ground and in the air and trying to get to him. Tell me what makes the book special to you?
2: Well, I uh, once I finally got in the mood to writing it, it uh, it turned out to be a real labor of love. As I said originally, I, I just wrote it for my children. And I uh, we printed it up on a on a printer, a laser printer, and just bound it together. And I only made a copy for each of the kids and a co- couple copies for me. And then uh, some other people heard about it and wanted to read it, and then they wanted a copy, and it kind of grew like Topsy from there. <laughs> but it makes it special to me because it, uh, I had sat down things I hadn't thought about in years and years, and it kind of brought back some memories, good memories, of, um, of you know being able to actually uh, save somebody's life while I was over there
1: true i would I would think that would that would be very interesting to to not only do the first time but then to go back and think about it when and with a little less pressure as I could when you're going back and thinking about what went on uh let yeah. me just mention to to the to the listeners we've got several people in the chat room um Anybody in the chat room feel free to uh send me a question if you'd like me to ask Dave something for you. Why should people read this book
2: well i I think. <clears throat> You know, I think it's a good read. Of course, every author says that. but uh, it's a, <laughs> We all do, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we all do. It's a different slant on the Vietnam War. Uh, the Vietnam War got a lot of bad press at the time, and, and a lot of people have some very negative thoughts about it. And a lot of people have a lot of bottled-up emotions that uh, that were over there and felt like they got a raw deal. And, and it was a chance to, uh, to write about something like that that I personally participated in, and that had a, a happy feel to it. People right. always ask, they say, well, you know, do you have flashbacks, do you have bad dreams? I say, no, I, you know, I don't, because uh, it, was, it gave you a real lift to be able to, as I say, to, to find somebody and save their life, you know, they would have died or become a prisoner otherwise. And I, I think for people now, especially so many years after the fact, to go back and, and take a look at what was happening, and, and the air rescue part of it has been a very neglected uh, part of the Vietnam history and see what was uh, happening, the links that, that the Air Force went through to bring their people back.
0: Right.
1: It, well, it, and like you said, so many of the things that that you know we we read through the years since then have been so negative about the situations, and and you know most people know somebody that was in Vietnam they, who does go through the flashbacks and and all that sort of thing, and and to, and there was very little negativity in your story. I mean, there was it was much more of a. Um, uh, just straightforward, this is what went on, this is what we did, and there's so much detail in the book. I like that there was there was just so much it wasn't just the rescues themselves, which of course are a huge part of the book, but a lot more of, of what you were actually going through and, and doing and, and just I, I like all the background stuff, all the background stuff that makes it more real and lots of setting stuff. I like that too <laughs> so, oh, that's good It's all the
2: extra you probably, details you need: yeah, you can probably thank my children and my wife for a lot of that as I always. Writing it, they'd say, Oh, how about this? Or you forgot to tell them that? Oh, you know, okay, I'll put that (laughs) in too. And so it was kind of a, turned out to be a labor for the whole family in the end.
0: Sounds like it was
1: definitely a family project. Well, now, most of us, those of us that are writing either fiction or nonfiction, we do a lot of creativity as far as, you know, figuring out what we're going to use. And and with fiction, especially because you're making up pretty much everything most times. Right. but you didn't really have to do a lot of that because, I mean, you, you lived the story. You know, you were there and, and that sort of thing. But what do you think um, sparks creativity for you as far as writing and getting started? And sometimes it's even, you know, getting started is hard enough, but, but getting yourself to keep going. Of course, you, you also had five people pushing you, but aside from that, <laughs> you know, what what do you think helped you to, to get the project completed?
2: Well, it always pays to have people pushing you in a in a loving, friendly way, but... I, when I started it, uh, when I started doing it, I just found out it was, it was really fascinating. It was things I hadn't thought about for you know, over thirty years, and, and then I'd go back and I started remembering things that I had really forgotten and, and trying to piece it together and, and to, it was a challenge to make it coherent to uh, people who you know don't know the jargon, don't know the lingo and don't know what was going on, and to try to get it down succinctly. And I finally wound up putting a, a jargon section in the back of the book for people that, uh, if they needed to look up to see what one particular thing was. But once I got started, I found it was a, it was very enjoyable. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun, and it was a challenge to be able to put it together in a manner that uh, that made sense. I, I finally sectioned it off. I, I wrote my own very unauthorized history of the Vietnam War, at least from my standpoint. And then uh, I covered the rescues, and then I had some what I called bits and pieces, which was just different anecdotes of things that happened, and then closed it out at the end. And I uh, I did not keep a diary when I was over there, so I could not even attempt a day-to-day or a week-to-week thing, so I, I just had to sort of write it like that.
1: Right. Um, what do you think um, are some of the things that, that can help people get past their stumbling blocks in their writing? Because a lot of people start to write, and then they stop for. A wide variety of reasons, um, or you'll you talk to people who, oh yeah, I started a book fifteen years ago, and they're they're never going to finish the book. They just won't. What are what are some tips that you could share with people to to get them past that and get them to actually keep writing and to finish the project?
2: Well, I I understand what you're saying because uh, I had an idea for a book back in 2002, and uh, I never have done anything else with it, <laughs> but it's still sitting there. But I. I'm not a big fan of, of outlining per se, but having said that, I think the biggest thing is you sort of need to at least have a, a kind of a roadmap map in your mind of where you're going and, and what you want to do with it. If you don't, you get bogged down, and that's what happened in the other book I was going to write. I just, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say next, I don't know where I'm going to go, I don't know what I'm going to do, because I didn't have any big overarching plan. And so I think for people that want to write, uh, they need to sit down and, and think about, who they're writing to, who their audience is going to be, and and what is it they're trying to say, and then what kind of sequence of events, what is it uh, that that they're going to cover. And once you do that, then you start filling in the gaps, and it goes fairly easy.
1: You know, it's funny um because... Actually, I forgot to mention that Dave is actually touring with us this month. He's doing a virtual book tour to promote his book, and he's on all kinds of different websites and blogs and radio shows—not just mine. You know, and, and doing different things to, to talk to people and to get the word out about the book and to answer questions. So, people that are too shy to to ask today can turn up on one of those and, and find out. Uh, let me say too, real quick, that anybody that would like to check—I've um, got several links on my blog talk radio page um, to get information. But it's it's funny what I was thinking when you you talked about knowing your audience is is people are filling out an application to do a tour with me, and I say, you know, who did you write the book for? Who did you have in mind? And they look at me like I've lost my mind. (laughs) You know, it really helps as you're writing the book, and then definitely when you get ready to promote the book, if you know who you're talking to, who did you write the book to share it with? You know, aside from the family, we know that was edition number one.
2: Right, <laughs> but uh,
1: <laughs> but in, in in the beginning of the book, David's got um, an ex- explanation that there was uh, the first edition, the second, and we're up to the fifth edition now. And he has an explanation on which, what each edition, you know, what changed in each one, and who it was directed to. I like that; that was neat. What are the most unique things that you've done to promote the book so
2: far? Well, I I haven't uh, probably maybe been as active as I should. One of the things I've done is I've uh, I've. Given talks in my local area, Uh, talked to some civic clubs and uh, to a a church, and uh, actually in front of a historical society. And uh, I've done that. And I got a uh, actually, thanks to my wife, I got a tip uh, about they said somebody was talking about books, and they said one of the best things you can do to promote your book is make a bookmark because everybody reads, that young dude reads anyway, and they need a bookmark, and they said, put your information on there, put some pictures and how they can get hold of you, in, and promote your book, and I've done that, and that has really worked out well for me. That is, uh, people comment on that, oh, I've still got your bookmark, you know, and they show it to their friends and things, and that is, has really worked out well for me.
1: Well, and they're laminated. It's a nice bookmark. Oh, <laughs> <So> I, <laughs> I've used that in a couple books since I got it. <laughs> so. Well, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it has, date, actually, it's in your book right this second, but I've been using it in a couple other ones too. Now, I, I have a question I ask everybody, but you're going to have a more unique answer for it. I ask people, why are you the best person to write this book? What in your background or your research makes you qualified to do justice to the topic? And well, I've never seen anybody see. that has the qualifications you have.
2: <laughs> <laughs> hmm i have to know. Uh, don't have to really think about that very much. I, you know, I lived, I was there, and uh, True. it was uh, kind of an intense period of my life. And and as I say, uh, something that um, I won't say it was a really happy time, but it left a lot of good memories. Uh, you know, a lot of positive things that I got done. And well, as we talk about this, I meant to mention earlier. I, I sure don't want to put down. There were people in Vietnam who had some very very bad experiences on the ground, and and they have. Just been bottled up and unable to do it, and, and I'm not putting them down at all. You know everybody who was in Vietnam had a different story and a different experience, and I was fortunate enough that I was doing something that really gave me a lift at the end of the day.
1: A lift. Was, was there a pun intended there?
2: No. <laughs> that is a good thought. <laughs> <odd. laughs>
1: Sorry. I just had to ask. <laughs> well, you're right. There, there, are, there are many people. Like I said, there's, there's many people, and, and we all know people that, that had very bad experiences. It's, just, it's so nice that, that you had positive things to share and are, are able to put it out in a form to share it with other people and, and let them see other, other parts of what went on. So now if somebody is thinking about buying the book or they're thinking about buying it as a gift for somebody, but they're concerned that it might not interest them or maybe it's just not really their cup of tea or um, I'm not this kind of female, but some females might be, oh, it's a war book. I don't really want to read that. What, what could you tell them to help them to, to help them to make an educated decision about, about buying a copy?
2: Well, the first thing I'd say is buy the book anyway. But hasn't said that.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've been surprised. At the number of uh, females that have really, uh, you know, I thought, oh, it's going to be a guy book, you know, it's going to be about the war, and and I didn't think women would be very interested, but women have been very, very interested and very supportive of it, and and several women have commented or or written to me and said that it has helped them understand what their brother, husband, father went through and and, uh, has kind of opened the doors to things. So uh, it's not a a political book. I'm not trying to justify the war, or, or I'm not saying anything for or against the war, I'm just saying, here I was, and uh, I was told to go, and, and this is what I did, and I tried to make it interesting, tell about the day-to-day life of what happened, and uh, try to let people kind of get into the feel of, of what just a person who's over there uh, actually went through on it, and a lot of people said that they appreciated that, that they, they felt like it, it gave them, uh, you know, it isn't just a glamour story about uh, guts and glory, it's, uh, it's just a story about one guy over there is trying to do his job as best as he could.
1: Right, right. Um, so, why do you think the topic would be of interest to people? What, if, if you could give them, say, two to three sentences, kind of like your elevator pitch, to to get them to consider buying the book? What would you tell them?
2: Well, I, I think it's a a part of American history that is far enough in our past now that. Uh, a whole generation of people don't know much about it at all, and you right. know, may not even care. But a lot of people, especially younger people, find it very fascinating because they've seen the different movies and they've heard the stories. And, and to them, it's sort of like a uh, a period that they don't know anything about, and it gives them a chance to uh, to kind of take a look at what was going on. And so I found that that's a, older people and younger people, uh, almost across the board, people said they they really really enjoyed uh, being able to hear it. Uh, I've had a a couple of people uh, tell me that uh, they've had uh, a person who was in Vietnam read it and then say, well, you know, maybe I'm ready to start talking about what happened to me now. Kind of ask this as a catharsis to open up for them. So it's sort of a book. Yeah, It's it's sort of a book. I didn't write it originally for that reason, but it seems like it has uh, sort of healed a lot of wounds for a lot of people. And other people find it interesting to see what was going on on a day-to-day basis uh, back over there.
1: Very true. Well, and, and, you know, like I said, in, in addition to the, the details of the rescue, which, I mean, you, you did those great, you know, as far as, and I mean, you know, the edge of your seat, you know, and, 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 and you, we all know you, you made it because you got back to write the book. But, you know, there, was, there were some times, you know, when you weren't quite sure what was going to happen. But I, oh, I yeah. like the edge of your seat books. I like the ones that keep you, you know, but with fiction you never know if the person's going to make it or not. But
2: right. But I
1: thought you did great with all that. So and I saw in one of your interviews you mentioned that you found your old flak map. What is
2: that? Yes. Well, uh, the Air Force, uh, well, any flying unit, has what they call sectional maps, and they're, uh, they're detailed maps of, of the ground, of, of the terrain. And uh, what we would do over there, the North Vietnamese, of course, had at the time the most sophisticated air defense system in the world, courtesy of the Russians. And uh, the anti-aircraft uh, guns that are fired, are, uh, the shells are called SLAC, that's something from World War I. And so what we would do is we would mark the locations of the known gun or missile emplacements uh, so when we were flying there, we could try to avoid them. And uh, unfortunately, as the war went on, the United States uh, would call a bombing halt in a naive assumption that if we stopped bombing, the enemy would give in. Instead, what the enemy did was promptly move all their guns and missile sites around, and we would have to then go and relocate them. And, And the way you relocate them is have a few people shot down so you find out where they are. So my flak map was just a a map that I had where I had marked all the different uh, known gun positions at that time.
1: Cool, cool. I just I saw that and I said I don't know what that is.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: Well, and and you've got a really good map at the end of um, each one of the rescues. You've got the actually Dave has an interesting name for each one of the rescues, and then there's lots and lots and lots of pictures in the book. Uh, I had more fun looking at the pictures, and a lot of them are on his website. But when you see him in the book too, it, it helps to, to coordinate with the story. Um, so he's got the pictures about the different things. He has got a picture of um... the different um, medals, and then there was actually there, there's like a certificate or, or something that goes with each one of the medals. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. And then he's got a map that actually shows you where each rescue was. In relation to the, the different areas and, and you know where where he was flying and, and that sort of thing, and it's it's a very nice package sort of thing for each one of those to have all that information in one place and and you know to and I like to look at the map and kind of figure out
2: where things are and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, it's interesting when I was when I was writing it, um, different people hear about it and they, uh, they I scattered my pictures throughout the book. Uh, yeah. And people said, Oh, no, you ought to just have one section in the middle or at the back where everything's all together. Well, I, I hate that, where you, you yeah. read along and it says, Turn the page and then you pull back and, back and look, look picture.
1: at pictures. <laughs> yeah,
2: and it just wastes a lot of time. Uh, my oldest son, who's uh, a, a photography purist, uh, hates my pictures because they're not all that great. It's, they're kind of grainy and, and everything. And, and I had to point out to him, I said, Well, for one thing, they were over 30 years old. For another thing, it wasn't the world's best conditions when we shot them. And, uh, so, you know, they're not exactly as pristine as they could be, but they're authentic pictures that uh, that I took whenever I could as things were happening.
1: I was I slipping was through the back and through the jargon section and, and the part about the pictures and saying, you know, I didn't have the best conditions to take some of these. You know? oh, yeah. I, I'm right. amazed at the collection of pictures you got. You know, I'm like, you know, he had to have been busy with other things when he was taking those pictures. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but uh, And I think you actually weren't even supposed to have a camera, were you?
2: Yeah, we were forbidden to take cameras up Ew. north uh, where we went, but I snuck one along and took a few pictures anyway. And now, as it turns out, nobody cares. I know.
1: <laughs> well, you never know what you might have revealed way back then. So
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, let me see. Um, it, I think we've covered most of this, but there's there's so many things of, of the additional information, you know, the, the things that went on, um, the areas where where you were on, on a an off day, or or after a mission when you came back. Um, the jargon section is great. The bits and pieces were were fascinating because there's like just little little things that didn't fit anywhere else in, in the book, but they were all they were just they were good stuff to know. Um, that was the part I was reading, looking over this afternoon. Um. So, like I said, I think I think we covered this too. The like I said, we're at the fifth edition now. And it pretty much, just as the audience grew, you had to make certain changes to make it more, I guess, more ab- applicable to the new people that were going to be reading the book. Because, I mean, if you're writing a story to your family, that would definitely be one approach, you know, talking to them. Right. But what what was the hardest thing in going from just having it for your family to getting it out and in print and on Amazon? Because that's a very, very different audience from what you started with.
2: Well, for me, the... What turned out to be the hardest thing was uh, getting rid of the uh, mom and, and your brother and, and the different names. I, because I'd written it for my sons, and that was scattered throughout the whole book. And and finally, uh, it was forcibly brought to my attention that if other people are reading, they're going to say, "Mom, my mom's in here," you know. So I had to go through it. And, uh, it, and the books from the different editions are—it's not all that much different. Uh, Sometimes I would uh, clean up a little bit of a uh, typographic error or I'd say, oh, I, I wish I'd put that in, Well, next time I'd stick it in. Basically, it's all the same story, but I had to sort of reorient a little. As I said, uh, when I went to go on Amazon, I realized these are people that don't know me, and, and are, I'm going to have to uh, kind of maybe explain a little more than I ordinarily would, and take the family names out. Yeah. True, true.
1: So tell us about the cover. This is not the cover you started with, is it?
2: No, it's not. No, the, uh, the original, I made my own original cover, but we just did it as a set on, on eight and a half by 11 uh, sheets of paper, and I just did my own cover. <laughs> and then uh, when I decided to go ahead and, and publish the book, uh, again, this is through the prodding of my oldest son, uh, I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to have an actual published book, uh, I really need to have, as much as I like my cover, I need to have a, a good cover. So what I did was I... Uh, I found this place where I could advertise, and I advertised for uh, graphic people that would um, that would be willing to do a cover for me. And finally, wound up with—I uh, was surprised. It was all over the world. People from Pakistan, <laughs> India, and England, everywhere wrote in, and I uh, finally settled on this uh, gentleman in England. And uh, was uh, I felt like he was the one that had the best offer, and so I told him what I wanted, and uh, what I wanted was basically what I already had, except done a little bit better than I had. <laughs> and so I, I gave him these, I want this, so you know, I want a jungle scene, and I want the helicopter hovering, I want a guy on the hoist, I want this, not the other. And And so he... He did it, and he sent it back, and, and he said, well, here's, uh, you know, here's what you wanted, and it really looked great. It was exactly like I'd pictured it, just perfect. And he said, but he said, you know, I, I got interested in this. And I played around. So I, I made a couple alternates just for fun, and he included uh, the one that we have. And when I opened it up, I, oh, my goodness, that's it. That's, that's the perfect one. <laughs> it has the helicopter in the front and then uh, all uh, wrapped around so it's on the back, and it was just, just perfect. So I, I scrapped my idea and took his.
1: Well, and as you pointed out to me in the last month or two, um it's a long helicopter that you flew too so it does, yeah, it, was, was a, it does go around to the back cover
2: take That's it cool. oh yeah yeah it it was a it was a large helicopter in fact, it was probably too large for doing. We felt like it was kind of a magnet for bullets. It was big enough it had a ramp in the back. you could drive three jeeps end to end inside the fuselage of it. You so, I, mean, um, I
1: hadn't realized how big it was, and, and I was flipping through last night. I had I had to get my mind ready for today, so I was flipping through and look at the pictures, and saw the one of you and two other people standing in, beside the helicopter. like, man, they do not come out to the window. And then for some reason, all of a sudden, it hit me just how big the helicopter was.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was a uh, fairly for a helicopter is a fairly large helicopter, and the reason the Air Force selected it is because it had uh, uh, it was rugged and had good long range uh, to get right. up where we were going. We had, uh, it had internal fuel for four hours, and then with drop tanks, we could fly for six hours where I had refuel. Well,
1: that's neat. Speaking of refueling, that's what I want to ask. Um, I have seen in the movies and that sort of thing the refueling in midair. Is that as hard as it looks?
2: It's, yeah, if you're doing what they call probe and drogue, where you have the, uh, the hoses with a little basket on the end, that's right. a very right. tricky thing to do because that uh, the little basket is like a ring parachute around. It's supposed to stabilize it, but it bounces around in about a five or ten foot circle all over the place and so as you fly in you have to bounce yourself around to match it and finally hook up with it and it's pretty sporting thing to do uh, especially with a helicopter because of the rotor blades stick out so far when we finally plugged in we were only about eight or ten feet from the tail of the c-130 so if you weren't careful you cut the tail off and kill everybody on board and yourself too.
1: Uh, yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but the blades would make it even more complicated than, than you know, normally. It just, it just looks like however big that thing is, it's just not that big to try to connect everything together. But, I mean, you know, if you're running out of fuel, you've got to make it work for you. So.
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It gives you a tremendous desire and uh, incentive to get it right the first time.
1: <laughs> Talk about motivation, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now, at key moments in each rescue, you mentioned seeing a light. Now, I'm wondering, um, is that something that you kind of debated about whether to include in the book, or something that you knew from the beginning was going to be there, or how, how did the thought process go with that?
2: Well, I wasn't real sure whether I should put that in, and, and just to tell people what it is, I'm a Christian, and when I was, uh, I didn't volunteer to go to Vietnam, but when I got the orders to go, I volunteered to be in in air rescue, and and on the way over, I was a little apprehensive, and and I felt in my heart, I didn't hear a voice or see anything, but I felt like the Lord was telling me that I would come back, I'd be okay. and During my uh, my very first mission, uh, which we won't go to now, but we were having some obstacles. And uh, uh, I, was, I had to focus on holding the helicopter absolutely still. And so I would just look down over my right knee and, and pick out a rock or a tree or something, just concentrate on that and uh, so we could get the guy up through the trees or the grass or whatever it was. And uh, I saw this kind of a light, brilliant white light out on the edge of my periphery of my vision, and I thought, that idiot copilot, a shiny light in my eyes, and I was really upset. But I didn't have time to do anything about it then. And, and once we got the guy on board and got out there, the light went out. And uh, I, when I got a chance, I asked the cop out about it, and he said, nah, I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, You know light. And then the same thing happened to my second rescue, and, and I, I came to believe that it was the Shekinah glory of God that was shining around, and, and I was able to see just a bit of it that was protecting myself on my helicopter. And that's just my own personal feeling. So I was a little reluctant at first to put it in. I thought, No, you know, I'm going I'm to give the testimony of what I believe uh, happened, and that the Lord did protect me while I was there.
1: Okay. I just Like I said, I was just wondering because I know sometimes people want to, to avoid certain things or include certain things, and it's a fine line kind of deal, but, you know, it was it was certainly a stressful situation, and, and you know, and it seemed like it was a good idea that you included it, and, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you, you felt like you were better looked at. at <laughs> I can't talk off the screen. <laughs> That's a bad one it happens in the middle of the show.
0: Um,
1: but like I said, it, it seemed natural the way you included it in the story, so that was good. So tell us, for those of us who who haven't been to Vietnam and and haven't really seen anything but the movies, tell us a little bit about what the terrain um, and the geography is like.
2: Well, it's quite a bit different than it is here. I was actually stationed in Thailand, in northern Thailand, just across the border from uh, Laos, and uh, that's jungle there. Uh, They have their open areas, but uh, when you're in dense jungle, it's triple what they call triple canopy jungle, where you just you can't see the ground. The trees are from 80 to 120 feet tall, and they're in three layers, and so that's what made bombing the trails or anything so difficult while you're over there. So uh, a lot of it is uh, when you fly, and in some of the pictures you can see it. It's just like a kind of a waving green, and almost like an ocean underneath you, and, and very difficult to see the ground as you headed uh, as we headed north into uh, Laos and then into North Vietnam. Uh, the parts we were in were very uh, rocky and very uh, steep in most places. Uh, Vietnam at the coast uh, flattens out a bit, but where we were inland is is pretty rocky and steep, and so it's uh, a totally different uh, type of atmosphere or, or country than than you'd be used to over here. Very, very, it's, it's hot and humid enough here, but very, very hot and very humid and very uncomfortable the whole time you're there, uh, and uh, every nothing really. There's nothing to remind you of home. You know, the people are different, the architecture is different, everything is is different, or totally different over there. The things you have to worry about and and uh, put up with. Uh, we did a lot of most of our flying at fairly low altitude because we had to stay out of the uh, down below the peaks of the mountains so we uh, could get picked up by uh, missiles. Uh, surface air missiles, and yet we had to fly high enough we couldn't get shot down by AK-47 50 caliber guns so we were constantly flying in that little envelope that was low enough and yet high enough to keep us going so got to see a lot of rocks and trees and jungles we went by and uh, just a, a really, to different, really different atmosphere from here.
1: So how, how much of a safe zone do you actually have to fly into once you're, you're not too low and you're not too high how much, how much space does that actually give you to move around up there?
2: Well, it, actually, there there is no such thing as a, a safe zone. You just hope that uh, that you're going to be okay as you go. Uh, we were low enough that uh, we could not pick up any navigational aids, and so uh, as we flew to our sites uh, where we staged out of up north, we had to you had to go fly them a couple times with somebody else and kind of learn. You turn left here of this boulder and right here of this tree and this sort of thing, uh, and you just hope that the um, that it was. Uh, enough uninhabited that you weren't going to get shot down because you were fairly low. You didn't dare get up too high because you'd get in the uh, missile range, and then you'd, you'd really get knocked down. And helicopters are, are fairly uh, easy, in a sense, to shoot down. They're, they're fairly... Uh, ours, uh, newer ones a little better. Ours were totally unstable. If you let go of the controls of the H3, the nose would pitch up and roll inverted to the right in about a second or two, and it was non-recoverable from that. So you had to physically hold it upright. And uh, they... You take a few hits in a rotor blaze, and they unbalance, and, and things go south pretty quick. In fact, there was one helicopter that I knew of over there that was actually shot down by a crossbow, and the guy was uh, was flying a little too low, and he crested a ridge, and somebody fired a crossbow at him, and, and it uh, just, you know, one in a million, it hit an oil line, severed an oil line, and the engine seized up, and the, plane and the helicopter went down.
1: Oh, man. Um, so so tell us, you, you mentioned the jungle, and... and I looked at some of the pictures, and, and like I said, I, I, I've had more fun with the pictures in this book. <laughs> um, even if they're not perfectly clear, I still had a good time because they just added so much. Um, but I mean, I, I could look at some of those, and, and it was kind of cool because you, you've got a couple of pictures together where you, you know, where we see the jungle of what you were seeing out, out your window, and then there's another picture where we actually see. A helicopter, if you look really close, you'll see the helicopter right. flying over top. You know, it's kind of, kind of neat how it, it blended in. You know, And, of course, I'm sure that's the reason for camouflage, to help you blend in. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it also made it really clear, looking at that, that trying to find a survivor in that jungle would have to be incredibly difficult. What, what kind of things did you all do to make it easier to find a person?
2: Well, it it was really tough. It was uh, bordering on the impossible. Uh, What would happen is uh, when a guy got shot down, uh, he would uh, call a Mayday emergency call on his radio, uh, on his aircraft radio, and... uh, it would put out a a tone like beep 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 like that and and then when he ejected when he bailed out of the airplane uh, when his uh, parachute harness opened he had a small radio on his parachute harness uh, and it would pull a plug in and it would immediately start transmitting the uh, the the mayday call just going beep 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 like that and we could home in on that Uh, and so what you would do is uh, you would uh, you'd fly in and home in on that signal Uh, when the guy got on the ground he had a, a what used to be called the walkie-talkie, actually uh, another radio he could talk on, the one in the parachute was only a transmitter. He'd turn that one off, and then uh, he would turn his beeper on, and then he would listen, and when we got in the area, uh, we would uh, talk to him, and uh, he could tell us, he'd say, uh, it sounds like, uh, you know, you're coming closer, or you're going further away, and we would we could get a needle swing from an instrument when we are over him. Well, you could never, very seldom ever see the guy on the ground. And when you felt like you pretty much had him down and, and you were pretty sure it really was an American on that end and not somebody else, uh, they had smoke flares. You'd ask them to pop their smoke, and this orange smoke would come billowing up out of the trees. And you say, that must be where he is. And you'd just go drop your hook there in the ground and hope the guy could find it and get on it.
1: Yeah. So, did did you ever have somebody who wasn't an American try to get
2: on the hoist? No, fortunately, we all had we all worried about that. Uh, I would the think. pilots were all instructed uh, if they were going to be captured to uh, break the radio or destroy it because one of the tricks that the uh, North Vietnamese like to do is they would either take a survival radio and tie it to a tree and turn the beeper on and and put guns around and shoot the helicopter down when it came in, or they'd get an English speaker on the line and try to uh, fake the person out. And of course we had authentication procedures. Uh, You would much like uh, people doing the internet now. You know, if you forget your your password, they'll say, "Okay, you know, what's the secret word? What was your mother's <laughs> dog's name, or whatever?" And it was a similar thing there. And so we could authenticate and, and uh, find if the guy gave the right answer, we knew it was actually the American on the ground. I never had that problem. Uh, it did happen over there, but fortunately not with me.
1: There was there was something about um, that you carried like ten thousand dollars with you. What what was that for?
2: Oh you no! Know.
1: And, and do I have that out of context?
2: No, that's that's right. That that was a, a sore spot. Uh, about, I would think
1: so because man, that was just asking for trouble. You would think. I was yeah, wrong. it
2: was. I, I you know I know how other people feel. I, I I really hated that thing. Uh, about halfway through my church some somebody came up with this bright idea that uh, we should reward uh, people that if. If you went down and a native uh, and, uh, person helped you on the ground, they came to the idea we ought to reward them. And so the, the general idea was uh, we were supposed to, uh, if they helped the survivor, we were supposed to also pick up the person that helped them, bring them on board the helicopter, and then we carried this uh, in different denominations. Uh, in gold and in different currency we carried the thing to give them a, a cash reward on the spot and then we were supposed to fly them to some place where they wanted to go and, and we hated that we just hated it because we all had dark visions of some suicidal guy uh, you know climbing up the hoist and pulling the permit on, on a grenade once he's inside and I don't know of that ever happening but uh, they would uh, drop leaflets and let people know if you helped an American you could have this $10,000 of cash and, and we just I wasn't fond of it at all
1: like I said, that just that just sounds like they were. I mean, I, I understand the the initial principle behind it, but logistically, it seems like it was a really bad idea.
2: Yeah, yeah. It, to me, it was. We also <laughs> carried what they called a bloodshed, and that was a leftover thing from World War II. It was kind of a a silk scarf like thing about. Oh, maybe 10 by 18 inches, had a huge American flag on it, and in about 15 different languages it said, I'm an American fighting man, and if you help me, my country will reward you. And, and the idea then, and when we had them there, was if somebody helped you, you gave them the bloodshed, and then if they could make their way to friendly lines and show the bloodshed, they'd get rewarded. And so yeah. that was kind of the precursor to this. And then somebody came, well, why not reward them on the spot? And I, no, no, you no. Know? <laughs> But uh, that's what we did. Why not
1: just make them a sitting duck while they're there? Okay.
2: Yep. <laughs>
1: like I said, if, if nothing went wrong with that plan, I'm amazed. But it's 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 great that it, that you know if it didn't cause any problems. Something that that I was thinking about when because I, I went through and, and read all your interviews you've done so far this month <laughs> when I was putting this together, so I just picked all kinds of neat little things out. Um, and you were saying you know about marking the map about where certain things were. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is you said what was safe a safe route yesterday could be a death death trap today.
2: You want to tell yes. about that?
1: The,
2: well, <clears throat> the problem we ran into, of course, is that a lot of the uh, the gun sites uh, and the missile sites were mobile, and so uh, they would move them periodically. And so if you had a when we went up to our uh, our sites where we stood alert. Uh, if you had what you thought was a good route going up there, it, it was a good route today. But the next day, they might have moved a gun in that position and be you know ready to knock you down. So you, you just had to be aware, uh, you know, ready for that all the time, and and hope that um, you know you got enough advance notice you could get out of there before they before they knocked you down. So it added a little flavor to flying. You're just never sure what you're going to run into. I
1: would think. Make sure make sure y'all stay alert up there. Oh yeah. <laughs> and and I, something else I hadn't thought about was that the The pilot who was shot down was going about 500 miles an hour, but then when you were going to pick him up in the helicopter, you were only going about 100 miles an hour.
2: Exactly. So, I mean,
1: that that radically would decrease how quickly you could get wherever <laughs> you need to be. You know, because I'm sure they didn't just have you just kind of hovering all the time waiting for something to happen. So,
2: but yeah. Yeah. Just... Well, the way that we got around that was uh, we would go. Fly two helicopters together. Uh, and the idea was if the one was the low bird, make the pickup, and he got shot down, there was somebody to pick uh, them up. But we also had four fighters uh, as escorts, and what they did is they resurrected uh, World War II prop-driven fighters for the reason that they could fly slow enough and turn around quick enough, and uh, they could help us. And so uh, on the way in uh, to where the guy was shot down, yeah, as you say, yeah, somebody just got hit at 500. And you're supposed to evade him at 100. It was a uh, uh, miles an hour was a little tough. But what we would do is we'd. See Send two of the fighters ahead, and they would kind of troll through the area and try to knock out as many of the guns as they could. And then when the helicopters arrived, all four fighters would, would go in, and, and if necessary, they'd call in additional fighters and, uh, and keep at it. Uh, and one mission I was on, we kept at it for three days before we finally went in. But uh, they would knock down as many of the guns as they could, and then it, finally uh, it reached the point where, okay, are you going to do it or not? And right. it was uh, then it was the helicopter pilot's call, you know. Do you, you feel secure enough? Do you feel like you can make it? Or, or do you think uh, you're just wasting the lives of uh, two helicopters and eight men for nothing? And so okay. the decision ultimately would be made, and you'd either do it or, or you wouldn't do it and go home.
1: And we're going to talk about that a lot next week, I have a feeling, aren't we?
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I remember quite, reading that part, and it's going to come up next week. So
2: <laughs> well, and, and, and quite often in the, uh, in the hover, uh, you know, there, you'd be under fire. You'd uh, you'd have ground fire. You couldn't hear it. Helicopters make so much noise, but you could uh, you could almost feel the bullets hitting the the fuselage and the thing. And and the trouble is, once you're in a hover, you're in the hover. You just have to stay there and uh, and just hope they don't hit anything too uh, crucial before you can get the guy on board and get out. Hey.
1: So there was a place that y'all had called an alert hut. Why don't you tell us what that is and, and what the area around the hut looked like and what it was used for?
2: Well, as I said, we were stationed in northern Thailand, but we had sites uh, that were called Lima sites that were uh, run by the CIA that were up in, in Laos. And um, the one that we used, uh, the daytime site, was a... Uh, very near the North Vietnam border, um, maybe about 90 miles southwest of Hanoi, something like that. And uh, we would go up, and it was just a little bulldozed uh, dirt strip, and uh, we would land uh, there. Uh, We'd fly around first and uh, make sure it belonged to us. If nobody shot at you, you assumed it was yours, and you'd land. And uh, they would drop off barrels of fuel for us, and we'd pump the fuel uh, into the helicopter. And then there was a little plywood hut uh, that had... uh, uh, eight bunks in it, uh, four sets of uh, double deck bunks, and uh, no windows, just a door. and Had a battery powered radio, and you'd sit inside there all day long and listen to the radio uh, because you were very close to the strike zones this way. And you could get, uh, the key thing in any rescue was to get there and get the guy picked up just as quickly as you could. The longer he's on the ground, the less likely you were to be able to get him. So we were fairly close to the action, and we'd listen to the uh, the radio all day long. And there was there were. Um, Natives who guarded the site for us, and they had a kind of little fortress up on the hill interestingly, they built their fortress out of our discarded fuel drums We'd, when we finished them we didn't have any more use for them. They would sit there with a chisel on a rock and hammer on those things all day long, drove you crazy, but they'd <laughs> chop the tops off and flatten them out, and that's how they made their huts out of it uh, around us was yeah <laughs> around us was um, uh, a lot of uh, grass, probably about waist-high, uh, what they call razor grass, just really knife-sharp on the side. You didn't want to walk through it. And uh, maybe, oh, two or 300 yards away was, uh, was the jungle, and, and that's where the enemy was. And uh, if you walked around outside, occasionally they'd take pot shots at you. And if, So we basically stayed inside the hut all day long. If they started shooting us outside, we'd stick the natives on them, but we found out it was best just to stay inside. They never figured out if they could shoot through the walls of the hut and get us anyway. Uh, we didn't have to worry too much about people sneaking up on us because there was all kinds of unexploded ordnance from uh, previous times and they tried to overrun the site. And if you went out and stepped on it, it was likely to go off. So, uh, And we just uh, sat there from dawn to dusk and then... Uh, it was not safe to stay there overnight because quite often they would uh, capture it in the, in the evening. So we would take off and fly to a, another site that had about 5,000 soldiers, and a little more secure. And the next morning we'd go back and zoom around, and if nobody shot us, we assumed it was still ours, and land and do another day up there.
1: Okay, so so what was, um, I think you called it the normal course of alert duty. What How did that work?
2: Well, what they do is they'd send you north for three days, uh, so you'd uh, you'd leave uh, our home base in Nkampanam, NKP in Thailand, and we'd fly. So we got up there just as the sun was coming up, and we'd spend all day at the daytime site, fly back to the nighttime, and we'd do that for three days. On the third day, uh, you'd fly back home, and that was the end of your alert tour, and you'd get a, a day or so off and then have like a day of squadron duty. They had backup helicopters at Thailand, and so uh, then they had an alert hut there, and it'd put you in there for three days and you 'd sit there and in case both helicopters got shot down up north, then you were expected to go up and try to pick everybody up so you 'd go there for three days and then you 'd get a day or so off and then you'd go north again, and it kind of went round and round like
1: okay, you said for these actions, they covered three days, six sorties, and you were credited with one flight all of that for one flight
2: well, the thing is. At the time, um, the United States did not want to admit we had anybody on the ground up in okay. North or, or in Laos, and so we would take off from Thailand. And when we landed at Thailand, they considered that to be one flight, and in spite of the fact it was, you know, six flights over three days. So we only got credited with uh, with one, and that's why uh, the w- uh, the way things worked over there was uh, if you got a a fighter pilot, if you got 100 missions, you got to go home. Uh, not so with the Jolly Greens, mainly because very few people ever got 100 missions. It was just pretty tough to fly that much. Uh, but it, we just had a straight one-year tour, so it almost didn't matter for us anyway.
1: Huh. So what is a sortie?
2: Uh, a sortie is a takeoff and landing in an aircraft, just a flight, I guess you could say, huh?
1: I've heard the term, and I just see, I've never known anybody I could ask these questions before.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that was, that was one hard thing writing the book because I spent 24 years in the Air Force and, and flew a variety of helicopters, and all this stuff I was like,, yeah, everybody knows that." And and I said, like, "No, people don't know these things." And so I had to kind of rewrite some of the stuff to explain it a little bit, and I guess I didn't do too good with that one.
0: Well,
1: and, and the thing is, too, we, we hear it in movies and we read it in books and that sort of thing, but you, you, sometimes you just don't know exactly what it actually means. So, Yeah. I, I'm sure I'm not the only person that didn't know what that was, so I figured I'd go ahead and ask. Oh, <laughs> why not? So, okay, we got to talk about the Susie Bake Oven. You have to tell me about the Susie
2: oh. Bake Oven. <laughs> I was <not> afraid you'd <laughs> ask her. I never should have told you about it. <laughs> See, well, you
1: include these things that I have to ask.
2: <laughs> oh, in our... Our base in Thailand, we had uh, what we call hooches, little huts, and they were, I'm not sure how long they were. As I recall, they had four rooms on each end with a central shower and and bathroom complex, and uh, each room held two officers for the pilot's quarters. And so um, that's where, you know, when you were back, that's where you lived and everything. And uh, they were fairly small rooms and didn't have a lot in them. Uh, So my wife uh, decided, and, and Uh, we would eat in the officers club and they had a a sort of a what the military calls a commissary which you call a supermarket they had kind of a little one where you could buy a couple of canned foods and stuff like that but not much and so there wasn't a lot of uh, fresh things and there wasn't a lot of uh, variety. And so my wife got this idea and and they, at that time, I don't know if they still make them. They had a little thing called a a Susie Bake Oven. And as I recall, it was a shocking pink. I think she repainted it or put (laughs) contact paper or something so it wouldn't embarrass me too much. But what you do is you had little cups, plastic cups, and uh, a a brownie mix, or cake mix, and you mix up water and you stick it in there and you had a light bulb in the oven and the heat of the light would bake these things and and, uh, make actually pretty pretty good little brownies. And when she, uh, when she first sent it to me, I thought, oh, my gosh, I was really embarrassed. Everybody made fun of me, just laughed <laughs> and everything, until we made the first ones, and they were so good. Everybody you know, everybody wanted to come by and have brownies and, and cakes and stuff out of there, and we had a, had a good time with that.
1: I remember wanting one of those when I was a kid, but, yeah. Just like the neatest way to make your own little cakes and cookies and brownies, and got to love brownies. Yeah, and that.
2: yeah, and it really worked <laughs> just, from, just from a light bulb. It was kind of amazing, you know. It was kind of a, a fascinating thing, huh? Like, like I said, it was, hey, it was your own little. Did a lot head. of things for us while we were over there. Another thing she came up with is, uh, well, she sent us a little tiny, uh, miniature Christmas tree, artificial tree, and we set that up at Christmas time. But uh, back then, you got to remember most they didn't really have digital watches like we do now, and so they were round dial watches. And uh, some company put out little tiny calendars, little uh, that could fit on your watch band, tiny square, and it had the. Uh, uh, the, you know, the calendar printed on it and a little tabs you could bend it over and hold it in your watch band and so she got hold of about 20 or 25 of those every month she'd send them to me and so I posted a thing up the great watch band calendar contest and people would sign up for them and then they could wear these on their on their watch which was kind of a neat thing.
1: I'll tell you. Um, let me see. You were also talking about how um, the strip at the daytime site had a drastic drop off at one point. Now, with with Taking off and landing with a helicopter—I I mean, of course, I've never done that—but it seems like they, the having a smaller area to to land wouldn't be a big issue. But what about somebody with a plane?
2: Well, you were kind of out of luck unless you, you know, unless you had something pretty small. Uh, the helicopters, of course theoretically can take off vertically. We were at a fairly high altitude, and the higher altitude you get, the more degraded helicopter performances. And if you have a little bit of a, a place where you can roll it a little bit, sometimes you can get them off easier. So it was, it was fairly short, and it did end at about a 30- or 40-foot drop-off. Uh, the only planes that could make it in that were uh, light aircraft, like you'd think of light civilian aircraft uh, type thing. Uh, and there were uh, a couple of wrecks of people who had gotten shot up and had um, come and tried to land there and didn't make it and slid off the end and wound up at the bottom. They're all torn up.
1: Mm. I think I saw pictures of a couple of those too.
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and you know, it was. I was. I was reading the notes the other day. Um, for Kenny's book and he was talking about it and I think one of the last things he talks about is being carried off in the stretcher you know after after y'all got back and I'm like wait a minute wait a minute I'm flipping through and I found the picture of that in your book too right So yeah,
2: that was really something. yeah
1: <laughs> I was really going, any other pictures in the book <laughs> the cover his <the> cover stuff <laughs> too but um but like I said, what I wanted to do, uh, just for people listening to let you know, what I wanted to do today was just kind of give you an idea of the different sorts of things. Um, like I said, first of all, that we're including in the book because there's such a variety of things in the book to give you an overall idea of, of the things that were going on. Um, to give you an idea of, of what um, Dave faced as, as you know, a helicopter pilot to to a point. Um, and then what I want to do is, is delve more into the actual step-by-step of the rescue when we have Dave on the line I mean when we have Kenny on the line also so that way we can get the pilots point of view and we can also get the survivors point of view too on on what it was like from the air and from the ground both so there's certainly enough information to cover to, to do two different shows to go over everything but was there any we've, we've got about four minutes left believe it or not <laughs> we're almost out of time um, is there any any information that I haven't covered that you might want to kind of just give the the listeners a little bit of of extra detail about?
2: No, I can't say of anything offhand. I think he did a good job of covering it. I, I, I would put in a plug for next week. Uh, Kenny Fields is a, a heck of a nice guy and, and he's written a tremendous book and he had a, a very harrowing experience on the ground and, and I hope that uh, he'll be able to get that across to people. At the time it was the largest uh, vis. Rescue in the history of the Vietnam War. I think after that there was one or that was longer, but at the time it was the biggest one, and uh, he happened to be in the middle of it. And I think uh, it'd be very interesting to hear uh, his tale, uh, telling what he was thinking or doing while I was what I was thinking or doing at the same time while trying to hook up with each other.
1: Well, and and you were just days away from leaving, weren't you? And coming back home at that point.
2: Yeah, I actually, it's interesting. Actually, I'd been taken off the of flying schedule, and they did that at the end of your tour for a reason. Uh, When you're over there, you you really missed your family and, and, uh, you know, just terrible, but you had to kind of put that off to the side and and focus and concentrate on what you were doing or you weren't going to make it. And what would happen is uh, as people got close to the end of their tour, they would start thinking about, oh, I'm going to go home, I'm going to do this, and and they would get uh, uh, careless, and that's when a lot of people got killed. So they would normally take you off the last week or two before you went home and give you a chance to stand down and get ready to go back to the world, as we called it. And uh, that had happened to me, and uh, for one reason or another, uh, the pilot in command of the helicopter called the rescue crew commander and uh, then they had a co-pilot too but they were short of RCCs or, or first pilots and so they came and asked if I would be willing to stand one last alert not up where the action was but at home base and I said sure why not and it turned out to be this one took off from home base and turned into a, a fairly big rescue.
1: I tell you, you had no idea what you're getting yourself into when you agreed to go on that one.
2: No, I had no idea at all. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: tell you, but uh, well, I'm I'm looking forward to reading that part one more time before we all talk next week. So I said, now now that I get a chance to talk to both of them, I'm going to have to read that that whole about that rescue one more time and and just kind of, you know, kind of get it all fresh in my mind before we talk and and of course jot down all my questions that I have for him too. So. Um, any other little interesting tidbit? Like I said, I already <clears throat> got you to talk about the Susie Bake Oven. <laughs>
2: so, <laughs> I just—I
1: read that. And I said, I have got to ask him about that. But um, well, and like I said, there, there is the one thing. Is,
2: uh, <laughs> there's one thing I guess I could mention. I guess we have time enough when, when I don't even think I put this in the book. But when we were leaving. Uh, my wife and and our two sons went up to San Francisco where we were leaving from and uh, they had a huge big hangar and everybody was there and they had their duffel bag and and they put you in line by rank I was a captain and and they started with the the colonels and so on down to to the privates or in the Air Force, the airmen and uh they'd kind of shuffle forward and wait, and shuffle forward and wait, and when you went out the door, you're going out to get on the airplane. And, and I got up, and, and so they were in the hangar with me, and then I had to get in line, and, and they were standing there. And so as I got up pretty close to the door, I got out and, and moved back in line a little bit, and I did it and did it, and finally I was at the very tail end of the line, and, and uh, people were saying, come on, come on, let's get going, and so uh, Everything was going fine, and... and uh, my oldest boy, I'm betting down to say goodbye to me. He said, he said, Don't get hurt over there, Dad. And, and I said, Oh, okay. And, and uh, so my wife started bursting into tears. And, and that was my last view of my family all sobbing together as I walked out. And she told me later that uh, she was, you know, a little apprehensive or upset about it. And, and this older lady came over and said, Oh, what's the trouble? And she said, Oh, I'm, I'm afraid that he's. You know that he's going to get killed or, or injured over there, and she "Oh, don't worry about it. Men are like a bad penny; they always come back." And she said, "What is he doing?" And she said, "Well, he's a helicopter rescue pilot," and she says, "Oh my goodness, he'll probably get killed." <laughs> Made oh, of well, a that lot was a worse big help. at that time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to be careful who you say those things to. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, how many? We're almost out of time, but how many medals did you actually get? Because I think you rescued nine people. Was that right?
2: Yeah. Well, I got a, um, I got a Silver Star and three Distinguished Flying Crosses and uh, four Air Medals uh, total, along two Vietnam Medals. Whatever that adds up to.
1: Well, and, and all the information is in the book. The pictures of what they look like, which ones he won. It just it really really is. But you know, knowing knowing that somebody did, and, and like I said, there's so much background information that just makes the whole the whole book more real, as far as I'm concerned. But Dave, I had a great time talking to you, and we I will look it. forward to talking with you and Kenny Fields next week and we'll talk. We'll hear his point of view and hear more about his book and we will talk to you more about what it was like to be a rescue pilot. We will be back same time next week, right here at the
2: same place and
0: I will talk to you then.
2: Thank you very much. I enjoyed
0: it. I hope you enjoyed that interview. You can get more details so if you go to my website at www.readyforloveradio.com slash Vietnam Air Rescues. I hope that you'll be back with us next week for the follow-up interview with Dave Richardson and Kenny Fields. We'll be with you next week.